Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Um, hello, everyone. It's June 1st, 2022. Happy Pride Month. I'm Lenny Manah-Hoppenworth. I'm the co-founder and the statewide coordinator, co-coordinator of Indivisible Illinois. And I'm here to kick off this event hosted by IL Vote. IL Vote is one of six statewide groups that make up the Indivisible Illinois Community Collaborative. Um, IL Vote is certified through the Illinois State Board of Elections as a bona fide state civic organization and works to increase voter awareness and promote voter turnout for every election. Tonight we're on Zoom and we're also live streaming on Facebook at Indivisible Illinois. This is being recorded and we'll drop it at the Ben Jarofsky show where you can listen to it later on. I'm calling in from Chicago. I want to acknowledge the Kickapoo, Peoria, Kaskaskia, Potawatomi, and Miami nations on whose land I live and work. I do this to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and to reaffirm my commitment to resist the erasure of our nation's indigenous history. About our agenda today, we have a brief announcement from Edda Worthington of Truth Brigade, Illinois. I'll give some background of our indivisible movement. And then for our main event, we have Ben Jarofsky from the Ben Jarofsky Show, who's going to moderate a discussion with our indivisible endorsed candidates, Tina Collins and Latisa Wallace. And then we're going to wrap it up as always uh, by sharing indivisible resources and actions that you could take today. So right now, I'm excited to pass the mic to Etta Worthington from Truth Brigade, Illinois. Etta, Hi, everybody. Uh, nice to see you all, and I'm excited about tonight. Um, I haven't met Latisa Wallace yet, but I am meeting her tonight, and Pina Collins, well, I'm in the 7th District, and she's my person, yes, so I'm really excited about hearing the conversation, but I'm not supposed to talk about that. I'm supposed to talk about Truth Brigade Illinois. If you don't know what it is, let me just tell you quickly, it's part of the National Truth Brigade uh, from Indivisible. It's an organization of people, a collection of people, where we counter disinformation online 
and offline, not by responding to lies, but by creating our own posts using um, the methodology called the truth sandwich. We've got a couple of meetings coming up that I'd love to see you at. This Friday, we have the Truth Sandwich Shop. Yes, spelled S-H-O-P-P-E. Anyhow, from 11 a.m. to 1230, that's the time when we get together and we come up with some new Truth Sandwiches. We figure out some things that we might not know about social media or figure out how to um, you know, share offline with people. Uh, I'll actually put the link here in the chat box so you can see about that. But then we have a meeting, <clears throat> pardon me, next Tuesday, the 7th, at 7.30 p.m. It's part of our every other meeting that we have. It's more of a workshop uh, type thing. It's on media literacy and critical thinking. The speaker will be Michael Spikes. He's a Ph.D. candidate from Northwestern University. He's been teaching media literacy for the last 15 years. Now, we know a lot about media literacy Maybe we have something more to learn, and maybe we can help other people because part of what we want to do in the Truth Brigade is to get people to think critically. Then they can change their own minds. Um, so I'll put that link also in the chat right now. Then two dates I want you to be thinking about. That is the ninth of June. That's when the January 6th hearings are going to start to be televised live. Um, the other date is June 27th. That's when we expect a Supreme Court hearing that will essentially strike down Roe v. Wade. We'll have a special campaigns for both of these things. So you may want to um, stay connected with us so that you can figure out how to share on social media because there's bound to be a lot of disinformation swirling around. So um, there's a sign-up form I put in the chat. If you haven't signed up before, uh, you can follow us on, um, join our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, or if you have any questions, you can email us and I'll put all of that in the chat room right now. And then I'll shut up and I hope I see you, some of you at our meetings. Thanks, Lenny. All right. Thanks, Etta. So I'll vote and Truth Brigade Illinois works alongside Indivisible Rural Illinois, Vote by Mail Task Force, jo uh, Social Justice Alliance, and uh, the Indivisible Racial Equity and Inclusion Illinois groups, alongside the many statewide chapters um, to help expand and engage our electorate to protect our democracy as we have been doing for many years now. Um, so there's a lot happening every week. So you can also go to indivisibleillinois.org to find out more. And I know that Marcy was asking to see if there's any time to do a brief announcement about a couple other things this week. Marcy, can you um, share a couple things with us briefly? Yes, thank you, thank you, Lenny. Um, we have, first of all, Lenny was talking about Indivisible Rural Illinois. Well, we have a meeting once a month, the first Thursday of the month from 7.30 to 9 p.m. And so tomorrow is going to be our, our meeting for this month. It's 
climate change, what do we really know and how, what do we really need to know and how do we influence voters on this issue? Um, climate change and environmental issues in general are impacting present as well as future. Um, and that has a lot to do with immigration, agriculture, land usage issues affecting affecting us because of climate and those are becoming prevalent, more prevalent daily. Um, our, our guest speaker, Dr. Tracy Schaefer, will discuss how climate and environment affect our everyday lives, will fill us in on current environmental issues and help us figure out how to bring the vast importance of this issue to, to the attention of voters. And I will put a link in the chat to that in just a moment. The other thing I wanna talk about is every, every Saturday from four to 5.30, Indivisible Illinois and Indivisible Milwaukee collaborate on a phone bank. We call voters in four, four different areas. You have a choice of where you want to call. And these are in places in Illinois and, and in um, Wisconsin. You can call Milwaukee voters. Um, you can call voters in Lauren Underwood's election district, Illinois 14. You can call Champaign County, Illinois, and you can call Vermilion County, Illinois. Um, in most of those, most of those, we're asking voters to get their vote by mail ballots. Um, and for Lauren Underwood, we're asking if, if people can um, volunteer for her campaign and please vote for her. I will put a link in the chat to that too. That's every Saturday from 4 to 5.30. This Saturday, um, um, because we collaborate with Indivisible Milwaukee, um, Dale Nook from Indivisible Milwaukee will be leading it this Saturday. Anyway, so thank you very much, Lenny, and I will put those links in the chat in just a moment. Thank you, Marcy, um, and thank you to the Zoom administrators and um, those who are moderating the chat on Facebook. Um, and I will, I would ask everyone here on Zoom to, you know, respect the chat, and we would love to see your questions, but also um, we'd love for you to be present, as present as possible, because this conversation is gonna be so important and, and, and very exciting. So a little bit more about us um, indivisibles. Um, many in this mostly white led indivisible movement marched for the first time, like myself in 2017. Um, and we came back home from women's marches, um, kept in touch with our friends, um, and created local chapters under Indivisible so that we could affect change at the national level through local community organizing. Um, and right now there are over 6,000 Indivisible chapters across the nation. We're proud to be a part of that movement. Um, that first year in 2017, Indivisible chapters came together in Illinois to raise tens of thousands of dollars for a campaign called Signs for Sellouts. And um, it was to bring mobile and static billboards into our red congressional districts across the state. We called out Peter Roscom, Randy Hulkren, Adam Kinzinger, uh, Rod Rodney Davis, Darren Hood, and Mike Foss for their votes and their failed attempts to take away our health care. Um, in 2018, uh, we learned, I learned, and many uh, of my friends learned with me how to knock doors, um, how to phone bank, how to text bank, and together we built a blue wave to take back the house. It was the year of the woman. 117 women, uh, 42 women of color were elected, and one of those representatives, as Marcy mentioned earlier, included IL-14 Lauren Underwood. Um, and she's a nurse who ran against the uh, um, GOP incumbent, Randy Hulkrin. Um, she became the youngest Black woman to serve in Congress, and we're still proud of the work um, she has done, and we would love to get her reelected this year. Um, in 2019, we impeached Trump for the first time, 
for abuse of power and extortion and his dealings with Ukraine in 2020. We made Trump a one-term president, the first time in a generation. In 2021, uh, we impeached him again for his role in the J January 6th insurrection. Um, we took back the Senate in 2021 with two seats in Georgia. And uh, here we are again in 2022, still fighting. Right now, we're continuing to process the mass shootings in Buffalo and Valde. And we are fighting to resist the horror in action acceptance pattern that sadly seems to go along with every national tragedy. We need to keep fighting to keep people and their media paying attention to the issues for as long as possible. And in fact, uh, right now, please save the date. We're going to take the streets on another National Day of Action with March for Our Lives. So save the date for June 11th, 2022, and also text MARCH, M-A-R-C-H, to 954-954 for updates. So in blue states like Illinois, we cannot be silent. Our elected representatives must hear from us. Primary elections are a chance for our candidates to reaffirm what the Democratic Party is all about. So it's critical for us to get out the vote in these often overlooked primary elections. Um, but for representatives, you know, it has to happen every two years. So that's a lot of work. We're in a primary election right now. Um, and because for many Democratic candidates in Illinois, the primary is the election. Most people, no matter where they live, the color of their skin or who they love, most people want clean air and water. They want easy access to the ballot. They want sensible gun laws, safe working environments, a fair criminal judicial system, and a democracy that works for all. We're headed into the 22 midterms with 42 million new pro-democracy voters. No other president has started the midterms on such solid ground. So we know that there is a way forward and that if we get out the vote, we will win. So let's do it. At this time, it's my pleasure to hand the mic to our friend who will moderate a discussion with two exciting, indivisible endorsed U.S. congressional candidates, Kina Collins for IL-7 and Letitia Wallace for IL-17, an author and prize-winning journalist, investigative reporter with the Chicago Reader, Ben Jarofsky of The Ben Jarofsky Show is here to be with us today. Take it away, Ben. All right, very good. Thank you very much, Lenny. And uh, just to let everybody know, uh, Lenny is dutifully recording this. She is our sound engineer for the Ben Jarofsky show today. As such, we're going to double her salary. Uh, and uh, I just, uh, as I begin, so this show will drop probably on Monday uh, on, on our show. And uh, that would be uh, my way of saying that we're recording this on a different day. That would be Wednesday, June 1st. Uh, and I'll just give you a sense of what's in the headlines. So if you're listening to this on the show, you know what uh, was sort of in the background of what we were discussing. Uh, Irvin's unusual firm draws questions. Yes, there's a Republican uh, gubernatorial uh, election coming up, which has filled me with utter dread. Uh, I talk about that a lot in the show. And of course, amid grief, Avaldi begins its farewells, funeral service for 21 victims expected through mid-June. Utter madness in the country right now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, particularly when it comes to guns. And I'm sure we're going to get into that. Uh, our guests are Letisa Wallace from the 17th Congressional District, an old friend of mine. He's been on my show maybe 2 million times, I think, over the years uh, as a candidate, 
as a state rep. Uh, and then there was this great uh, moment in my life, not so much, I don't know if it was that great for Latisa, where she would come on as a pundit. Uh, and we'd be breaking down and analyzing the Democratic debates of the 2019. And you got a great future for you if you ever choose to go in that direction. Latisa Wallace, you know that. Uh, and then Keena Collins, uh, who was on my show just today. Keena Collins, among other things, was a uh, high school classmate of my oldest daughter's. Mm-hmm. That's how old I am. Uh, and she is running for Congress in the 7th Congressional District here in the city of Chicago. Now you out of state. Some I heard from someone, I'm not going to say who it was, that told me that there were some people go, why are we going to hear about a Chicago election? Because it's important, okay? Chicago's the most progressive city in the country. It would be nice to have a progressive representing Chicago. Hello, Dems in Chicago. Just saying, okay? We don't have just to have Democrats like your t- traditional cookie cutter Democrats representing Chicago. Sarah Bingham's not in her head. She knows what I'm talking about. Uh, and so anyway, uh, Keena Collins uh, is also our guest. I'm going to start with Latisa, and then uh, we'll sort of go back and forth between uh, Latisa and Keena. This is obviously not a debate. They're not running against each other. They're allies and friends as well. Uh, but we're going to share the mic as much as we can. Latisa, why don't you take this moment to introduce yourself a little bit, remind folks who, who you are, and tell them about the district you're running in. So take it away, Latisa. Well, thank you so much, uh, Indivisible. Thank you to everyone who's here tonight. It's great to be amongst so many friends. I am out and about, so please excuse the acoustics. Hopefully everyone can hear me okay. Um, I am Latisa Wallace. I'm a candidate for Congress in Illinois 17. I served three terms in the Illinois House of Representatives, um, ran for Lieutenant Governor with Daniel Biss in 2018, and have since gone on to return to my love of human services, as well as do some advocacy work um, to help in energy poverty and create a greenhouse gas reduction plan in the state of Illinois. We're still, that's still in the works, but I moved on to this particular uh, campaign because when my congressional member decided not to seek re-election, my former constituents stepped up um, to different sectors and started this idea that I should run to represent them in uh, the nation's capital. One had buttons called Run Latisa Run, and then the other um, leader was a person who actually challenged Adam Kinzinger in 2018, and she asked for me to step up and and do this. People joined her. I finally uh, got my son to agree that I could do it, and so here I am. This is unlike other uh, seats in the state where the primary is not the election. The primary is just the step, first step, because we will have a formidable uh, Republican opponent. But that's a little bit about me. I'm happy again to be here. Great to see Kina. Hopefully we'll get to talk about some of the work that we actually did when I was in the Illinois House together. So uh, again, thanks for the opportunity. All right, very good. Kina, why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your district? Yeah, so uh hey Indivisible, Ben Jarosky, uh Latisa Wallace, what a what a group of folks to to start with. Um I'm Keena Collins, born and raised on the west side of Chicago. And um I let folks know all the time that the, the moment I became politicized was growing up as a young person on the west side of Chicago and, and witnessing a murder up close and personal by way of gun violence, by being able to identify the victim and the shooter. And here we are 20 plus years later 
and young children across the country and on the west side and south side are still dealing with that issue. Um, we made our campaign colors orange and orange is the national color for the gun violence prevention movement. I announced my campaign actually a year ago today um, for this 2022 primary. And the reason why I chose June was because it's National Gun Violence Prevention Month. And so this is my life. And um, you know, we, we knew from the very beginning that urgent crises all across the country were breaking out after COVID and it required us to stand up and be a disruptor in this moment. Much like Latissa, um, I was recruited by people in my community to run for this position. And then this go round, uh, some of you remember we ran in 2020. I came in second place to Congressman Davis. And now we're back in 2022. Um, but this time we're back with a, a slew and a plethora of progressive national organizations and local organizations who are backing us. Groups like Indivisible National and IL-9 and groups like Western Front that is led by people like Etta Worthington, uh, but also groups like Justice Democrats who have taken on incumbents and have won. Um, Congressman Davis has been my representative since I was five years old, and we cannot move forward with business as usual. And so we're not. We're fighting for single-payer Medicare for all. We're fighting for a Green New Deal. We're fighting for affordable housing. And we're fighting for a future free of gun violence. And that includes um, talking about reproductive health care and what that means for the future of this country. Um, my district spans from the western suburbs, Westchester, Illinois, all the way to West Englewood on the south side of Chicago. And so we, we take up a very key and important neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. And Ben Jarofsky is 100% correct. Illinois 7th is the bluest district in the entire Midwest. Our Cook PBI rating is a D plus 70. That means we vote 70 points above the Republicans. And uh, so much so that we don't even have a Republican in this race. So June 28th is my race. I'm excited to be here and excited to jump into the, the issues. All right. I'm going to follow up with you, Kina. And then because uh, the, this question I have uh, is tailored to what you just said, and it will be a different challenge for Latissa. Uh, you are in the bluest district uh, in the state of uh, Illinois, the bluest district in the bluest city uh, in the Midwest. Uh, I'm going to really restrain myself and not go on and on how disappointed I am with our congressional uh, district, our congressional delegation that does not, in my humble opinion, go far enough uh, to the left, which which is where generally I'm camped out. So, uh, how would you be different? Uh, than Congressman Danny K. Davis, let's say on the whole issue of gun safety. And what would uh, Congresswoman Collins be initiating uh, in Congress on this very important issue? Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I served on President Biden's transition team for Gun Violence Prevention Task Force right before I made my announcement this time. And I can tell you that on the federal level, they don't have a clue about what's happening here in the city of Chicago. Um, and quite frankly, people use the city of Chicago as the national punching bag on the issue of gun violence. But we don't talk about the decades that status quo, failed status quo leadership has spent defunding our education systems, eviscerating our mental health services, and uh, obliterating the ability for people to really pull themselves out of poverty um, and how that leads to everyday gun violence. And so I think what we're going to do different is we're going to lead differently on this issue. Um, number one, we're going to take on the gun manufacturers. 
which we know major corporations are mostly led by wealthy white men, um, have not been held accountable. The supply side is one of the biggest issues that we have in this gun violence fight. Um, Right now, as it currently stands, you cannot sue a gun manufacturer or a gun shop, for example, for negligence. Um, If you go to a bar, you get drunk, the bartender doesn't cut you off, and then you grab your keys, get in your car, and you tragically kill somebody, the family could sue you, the bartender, in the bar for negligence. That is the level of aggression that we have to come at. Look, the biggest issue that we have in Congress and why we're not moving forward on these issues is that corruption. It's giant corporations that have our government by the throat, and that includes people like the gun lobby. And so um, we, we need to aggressively go after the gun lobby. If we're talking about what needs to happen immediately, when we talk about striking at the root causes of poverty, we need to reopen our mental health services, make housing affordable, build a a strong local economy, and fortify our education system so people, um, we're investing in prevention instead of reaction after these tragedies strike. All right. Very good. Thanks, Kina. Uh, All right. Latisa Wallace, different challenge for you. Uh, Kina, as she laid it out, it's Essentially, the winner of this is the the next congressperson, uh, and is free to be whoever she wants to be in terms of like leftist politics. Different constraints for you. Talk about the challenges of trying uh, to win a general election uh, in the 17th congressional district, which is really very what I I think the breakdown is almost 55, 45 Democrats to Republicans, something like that. It's a lot closer. So talk about that, Latisa. It's extremely close. This district is a Biden plus seven. Cook has now rated it as a toss up. So um, it will be quite a challenge going into November. But I know that I represent the starkest contrast between the presumptive Republican nominee. And um, because this district is now bluer than it was in 2020, I believe that that means that voters are extremely receptive and open to what we might have previously categorized as leftist, progressive, radical, all the things that will get thrown at any Democrat who is in this November uh, general election. So since those are going to be the things that are levied at that Democrat, then they may as well actually be progressive and willing to fight for the working class people of the 17th district. Um, So that's going to be the challenge. But if I was able to do so many things in the Illinois House with a governor who was on the total different end of the spectrum as myself um, and still get everything that I put on his desk signed into law, I think that I've found a way to be able to work in such a manner that puts what the people of a district want first. And we all know that when you have people power, you can be successful in moving an agenda that the people want. And so that's going to be our challenge is continuing to stay engaged, continuing to be on the street, continue to be grassroots. That's how we will make it through uh, November 28th and it's um, June 28th. And it's certainly how we'll make it through uh, November 8th. Leticia, whenever uh, Lenny uh, uh, connects me with someone from Indivisible from outside of my little Chicago bubble. We always have this conversation about, so what do you say to voters in your neck of the woods? Because I live in Chicago. I mean, even now, since I had COVID, I'm more in this room than ever. I'm like literally in a bubble, Latisa. So uh, it's more like an attic, actually, but whatever. And uh, so the question I always ask them is like, so what do you tell your neighbors, your Trump neighbors, to get them to maybe like think about voting 
Democratic. And this is a real challenge that Letitia Wallace has got to worry about or think about constantly. So what is the message, like some specific messages, Letitia, that you deliver to voters who may have already voted for Donald Trump? You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? To get them to say, you know what, I'm going to vote for Letitia Wallace for Congress. What are some of those messages? Well, you know, you may not actually get to change their mind to, to vote for you, but what you can do is allow them to understand that they are being heard. Um, I faced this challenge initially in 2015. There were neighborhoods in my former um, legislative district where I would knock doors and they already had their Trump signs up front and center. Um, I knocked in a few neighborhoods where they literally had pictures, portraits of Trump on their door um, before I knocked. And that didn't stop me. Um, and it didn't stop me because the thing is, we are going, I'm going to just speak this into existence. I'm going to represent them, whether they vote for me or not. So I've got to be able to hear from them. It's not so much what I'm going to tell them or deliver to them. It is really being able to listen. And what I hear is an economically focused um conversation. People want to know, how are they going to afford a roof over their heads? How will they keep their refrigerator full and feed their children? Um, if they're like me, they want to know how they're going to pay for their child to go to college. Um, they're wondering all these things, no matter where they fall on the political spectrum. And so I'm going to be willing to listen to them and um, work for bold solutions that we know they will benefit from, whether they ever cast a ballot for me or not. Uh, Keena Collins, a similar, uh, this is sort of your variation of that question. So the challenge you're going to find uh, is voters of my generation <laughs> who are going to tell you, I think I probably told you this, Keena. Uh, you know, Keena, I, I knew Danny Davis back in the 70s. Uh, in other words, <laughs> Keena's laughing because it's so true. You know, Keena, I knew him uh, before you were born. Uh, and... Uh, but obviously, there's people with these deep connections and ties to Danny Davis. You know what I'm saying? His name resonates with them. And they have memories of like 1979 when he was first elected alderman. And then he served with Harold Washington. So what do you say to voters like that who may be a little, you know, reluctant to vote for someone so young? Uh, um, that's a great question, Ben. The job description for Congress has changed. Um, from 40 years ago, 20 years ago, from 10 years ago. Um, we're not dealing with the GOP of the 90s. And for some reason, we keep using these 90s playbooks around how we're supposed to tackle these, uh, how we're supposed to tackle electoral organizing and how we're supposed to get folks elected. Um, the GOP has taken the gloves off and we need to send our scrappiest fighters from this district who are qualified, who have delved into the legislation and the policy, but also who have the lived experience around this issue. But I'll tell you, uh, Ben, we, we've been knocking since the fall of last year, and um, we've made over uh, 130,000 dials into the district. We touched over 150,000 voters in Illinois 7, and we have about a 70% conversion rate. When we talk to people, they're like, yes, it's time. It's time to elect new leadership. And I've told people this and I've, I've spoken to uh, national reporters. I'm not just running for the Illinois 7. We actually need a 50 state strategy on how we build people power. And we're not going to do that with the same folks who've been using the same tactics and who have been losing seats. You know how we lost Roe? Democrats kept losing seats. 
They kept losing seats in the House, in the Senate. They kept losing seats in the state legislature. And Mitch McConnell kept packing the courts. And so we need to be 10, 15 steps ahead of what is happening. And the way that we do that is we start electing folks who are speaking for everyday uh, average uh, people. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do a follow up with you. And then I'm going to ask Latisha this question. Uh, this is not the GOP of the 90s. And this I got a really some great followers for Latisha because she has been dealing with the GOP when she was a state rep. Uh, but how aggressive do you intend to be? In other words, when you're confronting some really vile people who are racist, in my humble opinion, it's just me speaking. I don't speak for anyone in Indivisible. I speak for myself uh, who are racist and are out and out about it, just filled with hate, emanate hate. Marjorie Taylor Greene pops to mind just right off the top of my head. There's many others out there. Uh, how and you? How would you deal with them? Like on the floor of, uh, of the Congress, when they get in your face, when they antagonize you, when they try uh, to get you off your game, how would you deal with them? Then I've been dealing with racism all my life. I'm a young black woman who grew up in a working class community on the west side of Chicago. As we know, Chicago is one of the most hyper segregated cities in the United States of America. It's a sophisticated form of racism. But, you know, earlier, uh, Latisa Wallace talked about some work that she and I had done. And um, we actually helped pass the Illinois Council on Women and Girls Act in, in 2018, um, while Bruce Rauner was still sitting as the governor. Um, that bill talked about protecting reproductive health care, closing the pay wage equity gap. It talked about giving a voice to women and women of color and trans and non-binary folks. And Springfield did not look like how it looks now when we got that legislation passed. So I know the work that Latisa is going to do for her district. Um, you know, the way we won that, Ben, was I traveled to 68 counties out of 102 in the state of Illinois, all the way north to Cahokia, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Galena, all the way down to Metro East and Cahokia, Illinois. And we talked to the people. And what we have to get back to is the boots on the ground organizing where the people are going to apply the, the pressure on their elected officials to do what needs to be done. That's how the ACA, you know, was saved, even though it was trying to, they tried to repeal it since its inception. Do we need to go further than the ACA? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think that the way that we get any uh, major movement passed in this country. It was by organized people and organized money and organized narrative. And we need to go back to those roots. Um, and I'm going to use my bully pulpit as a congresswoman to do that. But I, I'm not, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> that's not the that's not the biggest problem, you know, that we have. Um, or the most pressing issue that we have here in the city of Chicago. And so I'm going to tap into my organizing ability to make sure that we're pushing and fighting for the things that folks need. Latisa Wallace, uh, talk a little bit about your experience as a state rep uh, confronting some of these same forces of MAGA right there uh, in this in the General Assembly. You and I, you'd come on my old show, we talk about it all the time, particular legislation, the school lunch legislation. I can think of other examples. Uh, um, really heated fights, nasty things said. Uh, and uh, the challenge is always, in my humble opinion, uh, for Democrats to try to sort of maintain a decorum without just losing it. Talk a little bit about uh, what you experience uh, in the state house and that how that could translate uh, to success in Congress. Well, thank you. So anybody who knows me knows that this is pretty much my tone like all the time. 
people actually laugh at me um, from for how I discipline my children. They say, oh, you're just so soft-spoken. You're so nice. Well, it's not always exactly how you say things. I know the, the phrase is a little opposite, but sometimes it is really what you say and you're able to get it across. Many times um, I call things out exactly for what they were on the floor, on the record, so that it was very clear when we were trying to destroy the child care assistance program in the state of Illinois, an industry that is mostly run by women and women of color, and uh, a program that was relied upon by women and children living and experiencing poverty. You know, I called it out when people started to make comments about the paternity of the children you know, and, and the suggestion that women who are participating in receiving childcare subsidies are promiscuous women. I called it out because that was a form of massage noir. When Me Too was, you know, talked about rampantly throughout our nation and in our state capital, I called out the massage noir in that as well. And I had no problem. I just got my memory for when we passed the ERA in the state of Illinois uh, on May 30th. Uh, of 2018. And on that day, I specifically noted that, you know, we've got to stop asking women of color, Black women in particular, to choose between their race and their gender. So my experience is that you just have to be able to identify something, be able to, you know, label what you observed. And then that's the only way you're going to be able to work on the solution to it or for it. Um, but if we are going to be just passive and not be willing to speak out against it, we will live several more generations facing the same challenges that I know my grandmother and great-grandmother faced because myself and Kina and the women younger than me are facing them today. So we got to call it out and then get to work. All right. Uh, it's going to be very important to some voters in your district. Uh, Latisa, I'm going to direct this to you and then uh, Keena will get the next one. Uh, it's going to be very important to some voters in your district that you can emanate sort of that Joe Biden vibe about bipartisanship. Now, uh, Latisa, you know, I'm very um, skeptical when it comes to bipartisanship. We've had this conversation many, many times. Uh, you, on the other hand, remain more hopeful than me generally, at least in my, in my memory uh, from our past conversations. Uh, and um, so do you think, even in this current political climate, it's possible uh, for Democrats to, how do I put this, uh, obtain any form of bipartisan cooperation uh, from Republicans on the issues of the day? And, and if so, what are those issues that we could find a common ground? You know, I am still naively hopeful. Um, what I have found is that I have to take it one specific issue at a time. When I was in the Illinois House, I was the only Democrat in my region um, in the House. And so I would find the things that my neighboring colleagues who were all male, all white, all Republican, what was that one thing that we could find that we could work together on and leave it at that one thing? find as many solutions as we could to that problem and to that issue. And then all the other things, I would have to just make a departure. Um, I think right now, 
we're in a dangerous space. You know, Kina laid out what's happening where gun violence is concerned, and we're continuing to hear what I think is going to uh, result in more stigma, to, uh, more stigma, and more victimization of people with mental health disorders because we're constantly connecting gun violence to mental health disorders, and we're not doing it in such a way that says. We're going to create opportunity for parity within our healthcare system for mental health services. We're not creating a pipeline for professionals. You know, we all want a school psychologist and a school social worker, yet we don't have them in our communities. We all say that there should be community-based um, mental health care, but we're not creating the pipeline. Part of that is student loan forgiveness. You have to have no less than a master's degree to be a qualified mental health professional. Um, and so those things, I think, are things that at this point, we may be able to find a very fine point of common ground um, but we're going to have to figure out how we're approaching it in a way that allows for that greater expansion of services that I just talked about, a greater pipeline of professionals that I just talked about, and the departure for me where there will not be com uh, compromise. So I can cooperate on those other things that I just mentioned. But where I won't compromise is the fact that we have got to have real common sense gun safety legislation, and we need to stop playing around with the NRA. So that's where I won't compromise, but there are some ways that I can cooperate. Well, I, I just have to follow up with something because you, uh, as, as my millennial friends tell me, you trigger me with that last response. Uh, and uh, Kina's laughing at me. Uh, and, and that has to do with the mental health issue, uh, Latissa. And one of the things that I find uh, frustrating, to put it mildly, uh, is the duplicity of the Republican Party. This is me speaking, not Latissa. Whenever there's a shooting, you'll hear everybody from Donald Trump on down talk about mental health. And they're all absent in battle, metaphorically speaking, when it comes to funding mental health from that point on. I've never seen anybody from the Republican Party ever help the city of Chicago out with our huge pressing mental health issues. In fact, if we have somebody from the city of Chicago has proposed that uh, federal dollars would be sent to the public schools so that every school could have a nurse and a, a therapist in them, that I can guarantee you it would be denounced from the top of the mountains. Every single Republican, what a waste of money this is. And those snowflake Democrats. And then as soon as there's a shooting, oh, mental health. So I, I find it very frustrating. Was there ever any examples that you saw in your years as a state rep dealing with Republicans, uh, Leticia, where you, there was cooperation on issues of mental health funding? Very limited. Um, I did have my former Republican, Republican colleague uh, join me as I was trying to create a task force for getting at some of the root causes of the crime and the gun violence that we're experiencing in the Rockford area. But you're right. I also introduced a bill over five years ago uh, that didn't go anywhere in the Illinois House requiring or hoping to require um, a trauma response protocol that would position the hospitals near schools and communities and neighborhoods to be the point place um, to dispense immediately mental health first aid, uh, just as you send the EMT for the physical uh, trauma that may have occurred, you need to move immediately to address the uh, emotional and psychological trauma that occurs when violence happens in a community. So no, I didn't get very far uh, on that, even with my Democratic colleagues. So um, again, 
it's a, the, the issue right now, though, the way we're framing mental health um, in response to what really amounts, in my opinion, to um, just way too easy access to uh, our, our guns and um, automatic uh, rifles. We also have way too few uh, restrictions, but that does not mean that the individual who is creating these violent acts is by default a person who is suffering from a mental illness. They may be, but we talk about it in such a way that it means that they by default are, and specifically when the shooter is a person who is not from a community of color. We see the trauma that happens in communities where people are exposed time and time again to gun violence and they become perpetrators themselves. And we never default to, oh, there needs to be more help. So we need to kind of divorce the conversation a little bit. Things are intricately linked, but we've got to figure out ways to talk about it in such a way that everyone is afforded, to your point, Ben, the thought that there should be an investment in their mental health. We also have to make sure that we're not so closely tying this violence to mental health that we then begin to further stigmatize people who are suffering from illnesses that are treatable and that need support. Absolutely. Uh, instead of scapegoating people. Uh, Keena Collins, sort of the same question to you. You're going to have a lot more freedom and liberty uh, to speak your mind without alienating huge chunks of no. your uh, <laughs> constituents. Uh, so do you see any hope from the Republican Party for anything re remotely resembling bipartisanship? They have abandoned their morality um, on a lot of issues. And I'll give you an example. We're talking about reproductive health care and guns. This is a party who has said that this is a this is about a fight for the sanctity of life. This is why we're we're talking about reproductive health care. We are getting ready to ban abortions before we ban assault rifles. We are banning abortions before we ban the ability for people to get accessories like clips that hold a hundred bullets and that can take out a classroom of fourth graders. Let's let's get serious when we talk about the compromise. You know, compromise is fine, but our freedom and our liberation and equity in this country is better. And that's what we need to make sure that we're fighting for and centering the voices um, of people of color, of working, the working poor in this country and so many people who have uh, fallen through the margins. And if they were serious about mental health, they would be fighting for Medicare for all. That is a wildly popular uh, health care plan across the country. Um, that was the work that I did before I decided to run for Congress, was training doctors and medical students around this conversation of advocating for their patients <laughs> um, and going to Capitol Hill and advocating for folks. Um, so I think that, you know, I, I support ending the filibuster in the Senate. We are not going to get anything done. We're not going to get common sense gun safety. We are not going to get uh, stronger public schools, lead out of our water, clean air. Um, we are not going to be able to eliminate student loan debt in this country, which is a crushing um, e e economic uh a wedge between black and white folks and, and other folks in this country. We're not going to be able to do any of that if um, the filibuster is still in place. And so what we need our senators to do is talk about what side of history are they going to stand on? Are they going to 
defend a Jim Crow relic like the filibuster, or are they going to move on common sense gun safety legislation, reproductive health care, and the ability for us to stop kicking the can down the road on things like uh, climate change and immigration reform in our country, right? And so um, I, I think that they're ducking behind things like the filibuster to get a lot of things done. And so bipartisanship is impossible at this point um, until we do something. And Democrats need to start throwing their weight and take the gloves off once again to make sure that we get this done. Kenan Collins, you're speaking uh, my my language right there with that. Uh, all right, you, uh, Leticia and uh, Kena Collins uh, each mentioned uh, reproductive rights. We'll start with you, Kena Collins. I don't, I mean, this has got to be at the top of the list. Uh, if, if, not, if, it, if anything means something to Democrats that unites them, uh, it's the notion of reproductive rights. Uh, and uh, if, so if you're sent to Congress, uh, Kina, how are you going about this? Uh, I know this is a multi-faceted battle. There's a state Supreme Court fights coming up here uh, in November. I hope everybody in Indivisible is paying attention to those. Uh, that's huge. Uh, the, the makeup of the state house and this gubernatorial election uh, obviously is uh, very important. But in the on, in the congressional front, what can you, Kina, uh, Congresswoman Collins, do uh, on the, to uh, preserve reproductive rights for women? Yeah, this is um, something that I've done throughout my political career leading up to this moment. Um, one, we have to understand that reproductive health care is not just contraceptives and abortion. But for Black women, it's the difference between whether we live or we die. Um, and that is a fact. Here in Illinois, we Black women are six times more likely to die while giving childbirth. And yet the GOP has offered no response um, to how we stop the hemorrhaging of, of maternal mortality or even infant mortality in, in working class communities. Um, immediately, I think that we have to pivot legislation to how do we decriminalize this? We know that if they're going to gut row, they're going to add a criminal uh, aspect to it and throw us into the mass carceral system that currently exists. And who will be the people that, that get thrown into that? Our healthcare providers, immigrant women, um, people who can get pregnant that are people of color in the LGBTQ community, those with disabilities, right? Those people who slip through the margins already and are disproportionately impacted by a mass carceral system will be the ones still facing that. So we need to make sure that we're protecting our health care providers and we're protecting um, uh, people who get pregnant who are seeking abortion care. Two, we're going to have to throw supports to the states and make sure here in Illinois that abortion clinics and abortion funds are funded properly and making sure that we're standing shoulder to shoulder with them. Um, and then I would like to codify on the federal level the, the access and the full access to contraceptives. Because if really this is just about you don't want people to have abortion, then federally we should be able to protect the ability for people to get access to contraceptives, which we have seen the same group of folks block the ability um, for people to, to get as well. This is about power and control. This is not about the sanctity of life. This is not about, um, you know, them caring about people who get pregnant or even fetuses. This is about control and power um, and, and stripping that power and control of autonomy of our bodies away from um, folks who can get pregnant in our country. Um, and we, we just can't stand for it. I've told people time and time again, my campaign office and my office, once I become elected, will be a nucleus for residents in my uh, district 
in other districts, and also for those folks who are going to have to travel across state lines to get abortion care here in Illinois, to not only get resources in my office, but if we need to take you ourselves to make sure that you get proper abortion care, we're going to make sure it happens. And so we need our elected officials to step up and be on the front lines for the residents in their district and truly advocate for them. And before I turn uh, the same question over to Latisse, I got to ask you sort of as a follow-up. Uh, when you, I know t- uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we're talking about things that happened many, many years ago. Uh, but when I look back at the uh, uh, the House and the Senate passing the Hyde Amendment, which uh, denied uh, poor women uh, funding uh, for their abortions, uh, I thought that was a huge mistake. I'd like to say I thought it was a huge mistake at the time it happened, but I, I may even been too young for uh, for political geeky me to know what was going on. But in retrospect, I really do believe uh, a huge concession was made by the Democratic Party. Uh, and I see this emblematic Kena of so much ways that Democrats act. They always try to find that middle ground, and then they sell away what they believe in, their core values. Uh, and in essence, what's your view of, of the the Democrats giving up on the Hyde Amendment. And do you think that's a, a sense of like where we should be pushing, pushing harder on this issue? We we cannot subscribe to a politics of leaving people behind. And that is what happened. They, they did not account for all the people who needed the access to insurance in order to have abortion care, because quite frankly, our Congress is is very white, it's very wealthy, and it's very male-dominated. So they are not dealing with the issues that so many of us are dealing with. Right now in my race, I am the only person who can get pregnant uh, as a candidate in my race. And it's not about me being a candidate. It's about me being in the workforce. Um, We cannot continue to concede um, the ability to add the voices of the people who who slip through the gaps and who fall through the margins so often in this public policy. What they're doing is not going to stop abortions. It's going to stop safe abortions. And so that is the fight that we're in right now and what, why there needs to be a sense of urgency around this. But, you know, I, I agree with you on that, Ben. I think we we give too much in these fights. When majority of the people in this country do not think this is too far to the left, they they do think that this is common sense. Um, but we oftentimes hear from the loud minority. Latissa, some of the same questions to you. Uh, I know you uh, obviously are uh, pro-choice. Uh, if you're Congresswoman uh, Wallace, what are some of the things you're going to do uh, to fortify this right from uh, the congressional perspective? You know, first, I want to start off with being extremely proud of the work that I helped do on House Bill 40 in Illinois, which rescinded the Hyde Amendment in Illinois. I vice chaired the Human Services um, Committee. It took multiple hearings, multiple years for that legislation to pass. So shout out to uh, now Senator Sarah Feigenholz for her brave leadership on that. Um, And that was five years ago. We knew this was coming when... Trump was elected, right? So we immediately moved um, as a state legislature to try to protect the women in the state of Illinois. And now we are a haven state. When Roe is fully rolled back, um, as we expect sometime this month to happen, Illinois will, as we're already seeing, have an influx of women and people who can become pregnant here to receive abortion care. Um, But what was mentioned, what Keenan mentioned is so true. This is about reproductive justice. 
Um, and reproductive justice is not just being able to choose when you will become pregnant and when you will become a parent, um, but it's also about, you know, your own ability to survive in that process, um, delivering a healthy child in that process, and having an environment that is safe for that child to live in. That is what reproductive justice is. And people have been fighting for reproductive justice for centuries, particularly Black women and women of color. So um, I will move to work as hard as possible to codify Roe v. Wade. It should have been done a very long time ago. And I think that is what the difference is between being able to cooperate with someone and compromising on your values and your principles. And there was a lot of compromise at the expense of, as, as uh, Kina so eloquently laid out, there was compromise at the expense of those of us who live on the margin. Um, I won't be there for any of that. Uh, and did you see any, I just want to make this clear. Uh, I don't recall one Republican voting for HB of 40. I may be wrong. I know that Bruce Rauner ultimately signed the bill, kicking and screaming and uh, not knowing what to do. Uh, but it, no, I, one. I, no one. <laughs> they didn't vote for it. And in fact, we were having the Women's March on Springfield um, and they uh, motioned to verify the vote because they knew a good chunk, mostly the Women's Caucus, was outside um, with the rally of thousands, hundreds of women who came to Springfield to make sure that we got HB 40 that day. Um, and so, no, they did not vote for it and, in fact, tried everything in their power to uh, delegitimize the, the vote. Uh, and so, obviously, uh, reproductive rights is part of a larger issue. Uh, Kina said this as well about uh, health care uh, in our country. And uh, your thoughts about a single-payer system? Again, this is an issue I remember you and I talking about so many times in the summer of 2019. When we were watching the debates, presidential debates, Democratic, and they were struggling with how far should they go to the left? Remember this, Letisa? And yes. uh, Bernie would be saying, no, health care for all. And Amy yeah. Klobuchar would be saying, well, you know, people like their, uh, they really, really do like their um, their employer insurance. Uh, and uh, so then we would rate the candidates, you know, like who really spoke to the Democratic populace and who was speaking to more to the general. Uh, what's your position on single payer these days? And go ahead. Oh, someone just put the exact thing I was thinking until you're unemployed. Um, your health care should not be tied to your employer. Um, it, it is. We have seen just an evolution of what we might consider uh, slavery in our country. Right. Um, and I think I can say that there's this economic evolution. We have our mass incarceration issues. But when you are in a position where, one, your health is commodified, um, access to services are commodified, and your ability to be able to afford access to quality mental health is tied to an employer, it keeps you in a place of servitude to that particular employer. And that's if they actually offer a health care plan for you. Um, so that is extremely problematic, and we've got to move past that. We know this. The general public is supportive of this, and we need to be working as hard as we can. And to the point, one more point about what this race looks like in the 17th. The presumptive Republican nominee is anti-choice no matter what the circumstance. 
anti-choice no matter the circumstance, anti-common-sense um, you know, gun safety laws, anti-climate change. There is so much at stake in Illinois 17. And so I am hoping that everyone who is able to see this live and who will see this again when you post it, Ben, really starts to pay attention to a race that really the entire nation should be talking about, but no one is uh, for another number of reasons. But yes, we have got to move to a place where everyone has access to health care. It should include mental health care. We should stop trying to separate the body and the mind. And we have got to move way beyond uh, the fact that, you know, your employer should control your ability to be healthy. Absolutely. And by the way, that last point you made about everybody should be paying attention to the 17th uh, is so right on, Letisa. It's a hugely important congressional election. I can't emphasize this. I know, Keena, not that I'm not a hating on your congressional election, but I'm just saying in terms of the makeup of Congress, whether the Democrats are in control or the Republicans are in control, whether the Republicans are launching investigations uh, into Joe Biden or we're continuing an investigation in what happened on January 6th, the 17th plays a big role uh, in, in that factor. So just don't forget that, folks. Uh, Keena Collins, same general question, single payer. I know where you stand on it, but let the people hear where you stand on this. Go ahead. I mean, let's, it's a fact. 17% of our GDP is going into a healthcare system where we are sicker than other developed countries across the globe. Our uh, healthcare system is not competent, not only because it is tied to employer-based insurance, um, but it, it's not uh, adequate. We have not included dental, vision, hearing. Um, people all across this country are one healthcare scare away from being in bankruptcy. And that should not be um, here in the United States. We should be able to get people, uh, healthcare should be viewed as a human right. And once again, the biggest issue that we have is the big pharmaceutical and private insurance companies and lobbies that come into Washington, D.C., and they dictate how this is going to go. Um, and so the entire work that I did, as I, I stated before, um, announcing that I've ran for Congress was organizing 20,000 doctors and medical students across the country from the ports of ent entry in San Diego to the steel mills in Pittsburgh, right down to blood red Alabama, talking to teachers unions and even to you know, older grandmothers on the south side of Chicago who were rationing out their insulin and cutting their blood pressure pills in half. This is inhumane. And we need to make sure that we're fighting for a way um, in this pandemic, in inflation, that people are not being bogged down with co-pays, premiums, and deductibles, but they're getting full access to quality health care at the point of need. All right. Uh, I'm going to, I have some many more questions to ask, but Lenny, I'll just put this to you. If there's some uh, good questions that people are raising, uh, some of the listeners want to hear, just uh, put them on the screen or something or text them to me, whatever. So I can uh, ask them and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make sure uh, Akina and Leticia get a chance uh, to answer them. All right. Uh, criminal justice on my show. We talk about crime and criminal justice all the time. Uh, it's a constant uh, challenge put it mildly. Uh, and um, I'm going to start with you, Keenan, and then we'll go to uh, Letisa. In this current climate, any attempt, and I emphasize this, any attempt to move away from the lock them up strategy that has been employed my entire life of living in, in the city of Chicago, anyway, any attempt 
is immediately met, uh, met by cries of soft on crime. It's, it's unbelievable. It's just instinctive. Just if you don't just if you're not for locking them up, you're soft on crime. And I'm trying to figure out a way in which we could provide like essential security needs to people in our city, in our country, uh, without just locking people up. Um, Keenan, your thoughts on this, the way it's used politically how you would respond to the way it's used politically, uh, and just in general, the issue of criminal justice uh, in a big city like the one that uh, you've grown up in. Go ahead. Yeah. If jails and locking people up was what kept us safe, the United States would be the safest country in the globe. We incarcerate more people per capita than any developed country in the world. This is yet another talking point. We have allowed the GOP to come in, co-opt, create an echo chamber for, and we have, um, we've shuttered communities. In the Austin neighborhood on the west side of Chicago that I grew up in, they have something called million dollar blocks, where the government actually spends $1 million per block incarcerating adults, which ultimately leads to about $100 million a year. Um, The Chicago Police Department has never ever been defunded. But what has been defunded is our education system, our health care, our housing, and even food security. In the neighborhood that I live in, 96,000 plus people, we only have three operating uh, grocery stores. And so it has put a lot of people in survival mode. Um, But let's talk about how Republicans are saying the Democratic cities are the ones that are running, you know, amok and awry. Um, The 25 states that we saw a 40% homicide increase in um, were the 25 states that are led by Republicans and went for Trump in 2020. That is the facts. We have seen a 40% increase in homicide in those states. The states with the leading murder capital uh, or or the the murder rate in in our country are states like Missouri, Kentucky, Indiana, um, Louisiana, and Mississippi, and Alabama. Those are some of the leading states. All of those states are Republican. All of those states voted for Donald Trump. But do you know what they also have in common? All of those states deal with high rates of poverty. That is the correlation between what we're seeing around crime and violence in these areas are the lack of opportunity to get some of these resources. And so this is not, you know, where we come from. This is not just our ideology about it. These are the facts. These are the immutable facts about what are happening in these states and in, in, in cities that are, are, are fighting poverty. And so um, we have to strike at the root causes. And no matter how loud um, that echo chamber gets, we need to make sure that we're centering the voices of the people who are dealing with other forms of violence, which are poverty. Homelessness is violence. It is a policy choice to keep people homeless. It is a policy choice to shut down schools. It is a policy choice to block people from the ability to get health care and get access to food and clean water. That is violence to me. And so um, we just have to make sure that our messaging is clear and that we're putting forth legislation that that makes sense, that we're helping lift people out of this poverty. Batista, your thoughts on this subject? You know, uh... I was in the Illinois House when we passed uh, the first iteration of some criminal justice reform in 2015. 
Um, I come at this from a very different perspective, not different from Kena, but different from obviously what my district may assume. Um, my father became a police officer during the Nixonian area, era, um, where we first started to hear this very sentiment that you express, that you have to lock everybody up. We got to be tough on crime. Um, we missed opportunities in our nation we, when we shifted from the war on poverty to the war on drugs. And so I firmly believe that we have got to get to a place where we are doing the investments that we talked about before, investments in healthcare, investments in education from cradle to whatever educational goals individuals have. We've got to get to a point where we say that every community deserves a functioning bank and a functioning grocery store. But it is, as Kina just mentioned, is violent to strip resources from communities and not invest in those communities. When we talk about criminal justice reform, we have to stop just focusing on um, these very dichotomous conversations around violent and nonviolent and, you know, not really looking at, as Kina talked about, root causes, not looking at where the supports that an individual needs and what their family needs and their community need so that they are not offending, so they have resources. You know, I see what's happening with the Ready program in Chicago. It would be amazing if we employed or deployed that type of policy throughout our state and across our country, because we know so many crimes are crimes of survival. Um, but when we look at what's happening in our criminal justice system, We've got to be willing, as I've mentioned before, to call out things, make the observation, label it for what it is, and then go and address the solutions. I've worked really hard on pieces of legislation in the Illinois House around that, including independent investigations of officer-involved sexual assault, because that's a form of police misconduct we rarely talk about. Um, there are Now we're finally moving to a point where we're talking about an actual realization of ending cash bond. Um, I remember passing legislation to just say that our jails have to accept whatever currency a person brings to the jail to bond out their loved one. Um, it was really that complicated that people were not taking a credit card or they didn't take cash. And so people would sit in a jail cell for days or however long until someone could come with a particular type of currency. Um, and so there's so much work to be done. I will, as long as my father will allow me to pick up the phone and call him and pick his brain, I will do that. Um, and I will always be as I was in the summer of 2020 with the people in the streets trying to understand exactly what they want me to be able to fight for. Um, and I'll, I'll now end with this. Um, we have just really got to get to a place where... I'm so sorry. I really get upset about these these situations and these issues. I have an 18-year-old son. So it, it just, it bothers me to know in the fear that I know he faces coming at him from every angle. Can he be safe in his own community with people who look like him? Can he be safe in his community if he has to interact with law enforcement? So I, I do get very choked up talking about criminal justice reform. But I, I believe that that's where the solutions will start, is talking to those who are having to deal with all of the things that we can point to that's wrong with our criminal justice system. We've got to incorporate them in the policymaking um, and, and hold police accountable for 
things that they're not being held accountable for. And we've got to end mass incarceration. Can I just add this one last thing, given Valdi that just happened in Texas? As Mm -hmm. the reports have been coming out about this school shooting, I am pissed. 19 police officers standing in a hallway for an hour as these children are being slaughtered in, in a room. And the whole while, the argument has been the good guys with the guns stop the bad guys with the guns. You had 19 guns against one gun, and they didn't even want to go in. If that doesn't tell you, one, that we need to ban AR-15s because those officers were even afraid to go in there with that type of power um, from a weapon. But two, that is not the solution. That is not the solution. I, I, I am sickened as I am hearing the stories come out about the just the complete failure from the de- police department in Texas in the Uvalde situation when this is a state that constantly says that we have to, 40% of the budget goes towards that police department and they could not save those children. It is, it, it's just enough, enough with that. Uh, by the way, t- someone who took a totally, just to throw this at you, uh, Kina, when you said this, I, uh, we talked about this a lot at length on our show the other day. David Axelrod, who is one of the chief strategists uh, for uh, Barack Obama, Mayor Daley, uh, tweeted out uh, in the aftermath of that uh, the shooting. Uh, the inexplicable heart-wrenching delay in Abali underscores the indispensable role of police. Uh, your thoughts about his response to that one. I'll read it again. The inexplicable heart-wrenching delay uh, to underscores the indispensable role of police. What do you think of that? I, I'm oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm go sorry. ahead, Latisa. Go ahead. Go ahead, Latisa. I'm just quoting David Axelrod, the greatest mind the Democratic Party has right now, supposedly. Latisa, you want to say anything or no? Yeah, I mean... What Kenan just laid out was so real. And then I hear the story of the mother who was able to get into that school and get her children out um, when the police couldn't do it. Yet the argument, as she mentioned, you know, I was on NIU's campus when that shooting occurred and people were saying, oh, we should arm the professors and arm the teachers and arm. Why? Well, you know, if the police who are trained to handle these uh, situations are not able and willing that is, it is terrifying, but it's also reaffirming of the things that communities of color have known for so long that you are not always going to be able to be protected by law enforcement. Um, and it is a shame that our children, that children uh, have to suffer and have died as a result of um, just woefully inadequate response from the police. And then uh, the final thing I want to say on this, it, I'm, I've been hearing all the stories and people are extremely afraid of the assault rifles, right? They are extremely afraid. Police are worried about it. They don't know how to take out an assailant who is carrying one. Um, and that just tells me that things could get a lot scarier and a lot worse um, before they get better. Because it sounds to me like there's this the setting of the stage for additional militarization of our police forces, which we do not need. We do not need people to be occupying our communities. Um, we need people who are going to do as they swore to do, which is to serve and protect. But I feel like we're setting a stage for something very dangerous. I hope I am not right. Um, but that's what it sounds like uh, rather than 
banning the freaking assault rifles. Yeah. That's where I think we're going to end up going. And that's and, very- and it's just a garbage take. Okay. Like at, at a certain point, this is how you lose voters. When you start to spin things that are so horrific like this, instead of coming to the forefront and say, hey, we got this wrong. Let's talk to community about how we get it right. Sometimes you just, we we have this dire need around, first of all, we're bad at messaging and we have to get a lot better at it, but it's this need to be right in horrific situations like that in a very human moment when these police officers were afraid too. Of course, these children were afraid. They were in the classroom watching their classmates die on the phone, calling the police as the police stood in the hallway. And as somebody who has witnessed that level of violence up close and personal, and I've seen someone be gunned down, it is not a normal thing. It is not normal. And it is a very human reaction to have. But our leaders need to step forward and say, we got this wrong. We got it wrong. And now we need to think about how we get it right. And maybe we need to start listening to some of these organizers around these issues. That would have been the correct response. David Axelrod was wrong on that one. Akina Collins, I agree with you 100% on that. All right, uh, we're going to shift gears. Uh, we're going to go to Leticia with this. And this is a question that came to me from Lenny. I don't know if it came out of Lenny's brain or she's passing it on uh, from another listener, but it's a damn good question. And I'm kicking myself for not thinking of it before. Uh, but it kind of has an, I could tailor this to Kina. And Kina knows as soon as she hears the question, she goes, oh, I know where Ben will go with this one. Uh, so we'll start with Letisa. And this is literally the question. Um, uh, uh, Letisa Wallace, how have you been treated by the Democratic establishment? And what does it say about their commitment or lack thereof to supporting progressive black women? That is literally the question. And I turn things over to Letisa Woo, Wallace. Letisa, come on, girl. I want to hear this. <laughs> It's one of those times when you wish you could just smile and wave um, because I feel like that's what they want Black women to do. Just smile and wave, show up at the polls. Um, but we have so much more to offer. And that's when I'm here. That's why I'm in this fight. Clearly, people in my district felt that um, my race and my gender was not a barrier or a block to them wanting to support my candidacy because they knew my work. Um, but I will say that there's been a lot of dog whistles around electability, viability, um, all of these things, but not rooted in much. And so I will say that we have a very long way to go as a party. We have got to stop um, relying on women, Black women, women of color to show up to vote, to show up to volunteer for campaigns, to show up to be the backbone and the saving grace of the Democratic Party um, while simultaneously not trusting them to lead um, and, and be in positions where they're able to help to build the coalitions that need to be built to ch make changes in our country. So, you know, I'm going to smile and wave as I'm expected to do. And as I smile and wave, I hope that people are going to my website and signing up to volunteer and are willing to help move past the dog whistles of electability. Because really the question is, and someone actually directly asked me this, um, the question of behind electability is, can a Black woman be elected in this district? And I say yes, when we all get our uh, stuff together, get our feet and our boots on the ground, um, we'll be able to do it. So. 
it's it really is time out for just the the um you know counting of our bodies to be there for election day and it is really time for allowing us to fully walk into our space to prevent uh, to stop silencing us and to allow for voices like Kena Collins uh, to be heard to some extent I had my time right I was the first black woman to serve in the 67th district and I brought my whole self as the ACLU said and and my whole community with me into that space um, so this is far beyond me but if you look at this race, if you look at the 17th district and you were to do a blind review of the resumes of the people who are running, you would say, I think that person is the person who can get this done. And oh, by the way, that person happens to be a black woman. Yeah. That was a great answer, Latisa. And, you know, I, before I turn it over to Kina, I have to say, the, the, like the perspective is so 70s and 80s. You know, and I say this as a person who came of age in the 70s and 80s. And there was like this notion that this was the governing notion in Chicago politics, Kina and Latissa. You couldn't have <laughs> each race subscribed to this, by the way. It wasn't just the black way of looking at it or the white way. You can't have more than one kind of race in a race because that would split their vote and the other guy would win. And I, I confession, Latissa, I subscribe to that for years. Well, you know, you can't have two black guys and a white guy. And then Latissa, you know, I have to say this, Tony Preckwinkle, 2010. I always tell this to people, you may like her, or you don't like her, but she was elected in a democratic primary. There were three black people running and a one white Irishman. And all the white guys were like, oh, we're going to win this one. And she won. So I think you're, you're up against this like 70s and 80s mentality that really irritates the hell out of me. Keena Collins, I know she's got something to say about this. Go ahead. Um, first, I want to say that Latisa Wallace is qualified. She's more than qualified. And that's why she needs to be the Democratic nominee, because she's running on a platform about not just the Illinois 17th, as we've said here, but about a vision for the Democratic Party. And quite frankly, Latisa doesn't need the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party needs her. And so what we need to do is make sure that as a community, we are the wind, you know, behind um, Latisa and that we are helping her um, in this moment uh, because all odds are stacked against it. And I'll tell you another congresswoman that they said couldn't win either, Lauren Underwood. And she ended up winning and she won big. And so, um, Keep your head up and keep going, Latissa, because you're inspiring so many of us. Um, I'm a disruptor. So I already knew that the Democratic establishment was going to come for me. I'm a gun violence prevention advocate. I knew the right wing and the right flank of the Republican Party was going to come for me. Um, and I'm ready for it. You know, in our district, we don't even have a Republican challenger for the general election. So June 28th is the election. And yet we have seen Speaker Pelosi come and stump in the district. We have seen Hakeem Jeffries just leave the district, who's the caucus chair um, in the Democrats. We have seen Team Blue Pack be formed, which is money actually being raised to stop insurgent candidacies like mine. What, what party leadership is signaling off is not only do we not want Black women in the party, we're going to pony up resources and stop you. 
by any means necessary to join the party. And we as the voters have to have a say at that. And we have to stop that from happening. Um, I don't think that voters should just vote for me because I'm a black woman. You should vote for me because I'm qualified. I'm a survivor of everyday gun violence. I'm a public policy expert, but most importantly, I'm a leader and I'm a problem solver. And that's what this district deserves. That's what this party deserves. And we can have nice things, but our party leadership doesn't want us to have nice things. <laughs> and so um, through all odds and against all odds, we're building people power. And I think that when we look at these last few primaries that have happened, Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, Marie Newman, right? AOC, Ayanna Presley. These are all people who said, not on my watch. I'm going to take my district back and I'm going to run against the incumbent. And so um, that's what we're doing. And we're out fundraising the incumbent. Uh, we need, we still need more money to fundraise. So <laughs> pull your wallets out. But um, what it shows is that the people in this district are ready for change. And we want to make sure that we usher that in. All right, very good. We got looking at the clock, uh, Lenny. We got about three more minutes. I want to say so. I'll I'll ask uh, Latisa Wallace and Keenan Collins just to close with some just general thoughts. Anything you want to leave folks with uh, before we all head out the door? We'll start with you, Latisa, and then uh, uh, Keena, You get the final say. So, Latisa, go ahead. About a minute or so. I just want to say thank you again to Indivisible Illinois. Thank you to Indivisible National for your support. Um, as I said, I'm out and about, so I'm actually in the lobby of a building joining you because the, the work doesn't stop, right? Um, I am hoping that those who are here and those who will see this in the future, uh, in the coming days, will do everything that they can to support myself and Kina. Um, it is very difficult to run for office. Many people have done it. Many people understand it. It is an extremely difficult and double burden um, when you're running against all odds. And that is the, those are the types of candidates that we are. But we are in this because of the people. We're in it for the passion of being of service and doing what we know needs to be done to leave a better world. My son is about to launch. He graduates from high school in just a few days. And I have always been driven by his presence to try to make life better for the next generation. That's why I'm running. I hope you'll visit Latisa Wallace for Congress.com. The name is spelled L-I-T-E-S-A. Um, and thank you again for the opportunity. I'm so proud of this group. And I'm so proud of, of what Kina is uh, doing in the 7th District. All right, Kina, take it away. Thank you so much, Indivisible. Thank you, Ben Jarofsky. Thank you, everybody who stayed. Um, we have a choice on June 28th. We can vote for this democracy as it currently stands, or we can fight for the democracy that we should be. And the one that we should be is one where we're fighting for climate justice and eradicating environmental racism, that we're fighting for affordable housing, that we're bringing relief and recovery to working class people, and we're protecting reproductive health care, but most importantly, that we're fighting for a future free of gun violence. And so, you know, uh, my background remains the same two union working class parents, that's my class analysis, making sure that we're putting um, those voices to the forefront. Um, this is an exciting time in our democracy. Some people might not see that. They are very disillusioned by that. 
but I think this could be our darkest hour or it could be our finest. And I'm fighting for this to be our finest hour, that our activists, our organizers, um, our parents, our students are getting off of the sidelines and that they're getting engaged um, in our democracy. Um, we know that the other side, they're not, they're not resting. They, they have a plan. They have a plan to continue to come in to whitewash public policy, to not help expand the electorate or candidates who can run for these seats, um, but to push forth an agenda where the core of it is white supremacy. And we cannot allow that to happen um, in this moment. And so um, I ask Indivisible to continue to do the work that you all have already done. Going into the battleground states, supporting candidates like me and Latissa, um, and bringing your members together to find out ways that they can help us. Um, please go to kenacollins.com. Um, to figure out how you can volunteer. We have plenty of volunteer opportunities. And also, please make sure to put your money where your mouth is. If y'all believe in protecting Black women, fund us. Fund the movement. Fund what we're doing. Because the only way that we win this is organized people and organized money. Thank you, guys. All right. Very good. That's Keita Collins, Latissa Wallace. Lenny, if you want to close it down with some thoughts, uh, this will be the official end of our show that will be dropped on Monday. So, Lenny, any last thoughts you want to say? It's all yours. Thank you. I just wanted to shout out or um, say what people have been putting into the chat. Um, lots of love to you, uh, Latissa and Kina. Um, thank you for all you're doing for us, Kina and Latissa. Thank you so much, Kina and Latissa. Thank you all. Um, this has been fabulous. Thanks, Ben, for keeping the conversation going. Thank you to Latissa and Kina for your hard work and for running two rock star candidates tonight. I'm so happy to feel inspired by you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you, Ben, Latissa and Kina for your great forum. You rock. Um, and for me, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Kina. Thank you, Latissa. I, um, I'm leaving so inspired tonight. I'm very touched by all of the words that, uh, that was shared tonight. Um, just a couple things. Yes, all of it, all of, all of what you said, both of you, um, it is going to be for the voters to decide, right? This is a people powered movement. Um, I believe it too. put your money where your mouth is. Uh, we do need to listen to each other. We do need to um, come to the table as problem solvers. Um, and we do want to leave the world a better place for our children and their children and on and on. So er, in Illinois, early voting is happening throughout Illinois right now. Um, check out the primary primer from the Chicago Reader. There's the Injustice Watch judicial guide to check out. And also the Girl, I guess, Progressive Voters Guide. Uh, return your mail-in ballot if you got one. Uh, make a plan to vote if you're going to make uh, a vote in person. Um, primary election is on Tuesday, June 28th. That is that is Kina's date. That is the Kina uh, race, uh, uh, Tuesday, June 28th. And in uh, November, we're going to be getting out to get out the vote for Letisa. Okay, so that's it for today. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. And we're going to end um, with... Um, uh, uh, an invitation for you to come back again. Check out indivisibleillinois.org for, for more information and shout out to everyone who joined here today on Facebook, on Zoom, and uh, later on when you hear this draft on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Good night, everybody.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.